Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. In today's episode of Project Recovery... When I was 14, that's when my mom and stepdad kicked me out of the house. Brought some meth over to the house, and my mom found it underneath my bed, and she threw it away. And I snapped. I looked at my mom. I was like, what did you do? She goes, I don't want that stuff in my house. And, and I grabbed her by the neck, like not realizing that I had her by the neck, and I was choking her. Make sure you listen to the end. Find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Knowyourscript.org, a great place to go for information about the opioid epidemic, how to talk to yourself, your doctor, and your loved ones about opioids. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. You just got back hiking. Yes, backpacking trip, the annual family backpacking trip. And uh, how many miles do you think you hiked? About 30. 30, just, oh, a day or throughout the whole thing? No, through the whole thing. Okay. We were, we were up there for uh, six days and about 30 total, yeah. So how much hiking in a day? Well, the first day's rough because we you ascend. Our total ascent for the trip was a little over 10,000 feet. So Which you've got to go up a lot and down and up and down. So the first day is about eight hours of hiking to get into. It's more the terrain, not the distance. So that's that's about 10 miles on that first day. So what do you do for eight hours while you're hiking? I mean, are you playing music? Are you Try talking? Try to keep going. <laughs> Just mustering enough energy to keep going? Uh, actually, I love it because uh, two of my sons were able to go this time and we had great conversations. That's what's really great about it. Um, my sister was in from uh, from Oregon, and I, ha- I don't get to see her very often, and she and I got to have a really long conversation just talking and walking together and uh, got to know her son, uh, my nephew, a little bit better since we don't get to see them. So mostly it's a lot of it's a lot of talking and connecting and, you know, no cell phones, no screens, no music, just, just walking and talking. I love it. It's great. But, you know, that's going to be something that they're going to remember for the rest of their lives and maybe even pass on to their own kids once they get into that situation. We do this trip every year, and I've done it since I was a kid. Uh, Rarely do we miss a year. Something disastrous almost always happens on the trip. It's a hard experience. And yet they still want to keep coming back. So this year it was hail. We were up at uh, Mount Taibo, almost 11,000 feet, Mm -hmm. when this hailstorm came in. Uh, No cover anywhere. And uh, it laid down about four inches of hail, and it was painful, and we were trying to find cover. Yet, the boys are still, like, talking about next year when we're going to go back. So you're right. It's a, it's a great family time. I love it. I got to do something cool while you were gone. Yeah? I, I got to be a part of a, a video that's being released to the state to promote the program that I was a graduate of. Oh, yeah. And that's the 24-7 program. I love that program. And that was the program that allowed me to get a driver's license while my license was suspended for DUI. And so basically what it was is that I had to drive down to the Ogden City Courthouse and I had to do a breathalyzer between 6 and 8 in the morning and then 6 and 8 in the evening. I had to do it every day for a full year. 
not even you didn't get holidays off didn't get holidays off i was there for my birthday christmas easter you name it i was there right uh, that's part of the deal it's 24 7 sobriety new year's day yep yep and i'm happy to be there and I, and I was one of the guys that was really happy to be in the program because I went a whole year without a license before I got into this program. Well, I remember the days of riding your daughter's bike down to the, the, Maverick. the, the Maverick to get some bread and milk and yeah. Yeah, put it in the basket. And so now they're getting ready to uh, make this program statewide. Which makes so much sense. This you know, is especially such a... in the rural communities where they don't have public transportation. Well, and we barely have it here, let's be honest. Yeah. Like, you can't really get around easily if you're working on public transit without sort of spending your whole day. So they asked me if I'd come and speak about my experience with the program and talk about the, the good points and the bad points. Uh, because, I mean... it. It is a pain in the butt. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it, it really is time consuming and it handcuffs you to uh, your your city for a whole year. Right. And, uh, no travel, not going anywhere. You know. And they've got some new improvements coming that's going to make it easier for those who do have to travel for work and stuff like that. So the, it's in it's always in motion. And so it's mm-hmm. going to become a better program. But I was sitting there and I was talking to him and I was talking to uh, this UHP officer, which is the Utah Highway Patrol, Chris Simmons. Mm-hmm. And after a while talking, we found out that uh, I grew up in the same neighborhood as his wife, and she was a little bit older, okay. and I knew some of their siblings and stuff. And, and I was talking to them afterwards, and we're just kind Which of- Which for the listener is not a big deal, because Casey, like, it's one degree of separation. He knows everybody. I'm the Kevin yeah. Bacon of Utah. You really, Well, you're better than Kevin Bacon. Like, yes. He has seven degrees of separation. You might have two. And I can cut loose footloose. Yeah, you can. Um, and so we're talking and, uh, you know, just kind of going over, you know- what I've been doing in my recovery and about the podcast. And he goes, you know, I was, I was here the night you got your DUI. I got the phone call that you got your DUI. Really? Oh, really? And uh, he wasn't there on scene with me and we were talking about it. And in retrospect and thinking about it, how lucky I was to make it through this and how lucky was it the family that I hit to make it through this. I mean, there were, by the God graces, it, everything worked out. And I don't, and, and the family that I hit probably doesn't think the same thing. Well, they've had their own experience yeah. and we haven't really had a chance to hear from them. So but, I, I can't speak on them, but right. I can, I could say is that you guys were a part of my recovery and you guys were instrumental in me finding help, seeking help and, and, and becoming a better person. It was a rock bottom, right? We talk about that on the show a lot. This, that was your rock bottom. And so I said, do you mind if I get a picture with you guys? And they said, sure. And so I put my arms around them, and, 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 they, and they, were, they were a little bit taller than me, so it looked like they were holding me up. And somebody on Instagram goes, isn't that picture fitting? And I go, what do you mean? And she goes, there's those officers holding you up, making you a better man. And I go, you know what? They really did. It's a great way to look at it. They really did. And I was thinking about what we were going to talk about on my drive down. And I can tell you, three months out of rehab, I didn't walk around with my head held high because I didn't feel like I deserved it. As a matter of fact, I didn't. But three years later, coming up in September, that'll be how long I've been sober, I walk with my head held high. I'm proud of my accomplishments. I'm proud of where I'm going. I'm proud of what I'm doing. And in that moment, me lying down on the ground with blood coming in my eyes and sirens going everywhere, I never thought I'd be able to walk around with my head held high again. I've done some cool things in the past week where I've been around people 
and they've come up to me and told me how proud they are of me and, and what an example I am being. And, and, and it makes me feel so good. And, and I don't know how to take it sometimes because I want to go, Hey, look, I'm just trying to do me. I'm, you know what I mean? Right. I, I don't, I'm glad that you find inspiration and that I'm showing people that recovery is possible and you can climb out of that dark hole that you, you put yourself in. Cause let's be honest, we put ourselves in it. Right. And we, you know, and, and I, 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 you know, I, in my Facebook post, I know I'm rambling. I said, the last time I ran into the UHP, it wasn't good. <laughs> this time, right. it's been a great experience. And um, I wonder how long it takes before you can hold your head high again. How many times can you say sorry? I mean, I'll never be able to say sorry enough to the family I hit. But how long do you have to walk around with that shame? I mean, I, I'm ashamed of my actions, but I'm not ashamed of who I am, if that makes sense. Well, of course. And in fact, I think you bring up a, a really interesting point. I believe every emotion has a purpose, a very specific purpose. It, and, and an emotion like shame is a really hard feeling to have, right? I mean, it's very damaging. Like you said, it brings your head down. But I think the purpose in shame is behavior change. That's why it's so miserable to walk around. It's okay to walk around with other feelings and kind of harbor them maybe, but with shame, it's so it's such a downer. It pulls you down so much. And I think the reason for that is it's trying to kick you in the pants and get you moving to make changes. So hopefully you don't hold on to shame too long. If you're feeling shame about your situation, the listener, if you're feeling that way right now, ask yourself, what do I need to get busy doing in order to be able to hold my head up and let the shame go and make changes? And I think that's when you sh- made that shift from walking around feeling unworthy to to hold your head up to being in a situation now where you're promoting um, recovery all the time. And in fact, one thing that I've thought before, and I don't think I've ever said to you was, I think people looked at you before and they thought, man, Casey has a fun career, right? Mm-hmm. You're road tripping all over the state. And you've been on the radio and TV and having a lot of fun. But I think your career now has gone from a fun career to a meaningful career. And it's, I'll take meaningful every day, all Every day. day, because now there's meaning. It's not just fun, and I think it, it can be fun, right? We've, we've had some good times on here. Oh, yeah, on this show and, and, and the other things you get to do are a lot of fun. I think you're a fun guy. But now I can tell that you feel like your career is a meaningful career, that it means something to go out and do these videos and promote a recovery lifestyle and to be on this show. And, and we're so, you and I, I know, are both so grateful to our great guests who come on. And they're really the stars of the show because they get to inspire other people with their stories. But I think, I think you shifted from, from fun to meaningful when you decided to let go of the shame and kick yourself in the pants and get moving. I appreciate it, and, and I think you're right, and, and thank you very much. And we've had that; we've had great examples of that on our guests. I don't think we've ever had a guest where I wouldn't say the same thing. And so that's why, if you're harboring shame, if you're harboring guilt, those heavy, heavy emotions, ask yourself, what, what, what's the purpose of this in my life? It's got to be behavior change. What behavior do I need to change or behaviors in order for shame and guilt to go away and positive action to take over? And that, that's your own therapy right there. If you can do that, you're going to feel better right away. I saw a meme before I got in here, and it was on recovery. And it said, there's only two things in this world that you can, can control, feelings and effort. 
And I thought, you know what? That's okay. that, that's pretty good. You know, you can control your feelings if you learn and you have the proper tools. Sure. And you can control how much effort you want to put into it. Definitely. Recovery's not easy. No. And you got to do the work. And a lot of people get into recovery and don't do the work. And then it doesn't last. And, right. then, then, and then they're going to relapse. And bad things will happen. You've got to put in the work. And you've got to learn to control your feelings. I like Be- that. So many people have got into their addiction because of their feelings, their anxiety, they're mm-hmm. suppressing emotions, they're doing whatever. Anxiety, depression, we know how intimately tied mental health issues are with substance abuse and, and addiction and, and uh, getting treating those things appropriately are going to help with anybody's recovery. All right. Well, I'm excited for our guest today. His name is Abe Ortega. We're going to hear from him in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today is Abe Ortega, or Abel Ortega. What, what do you go by? My name is Abel Ortega. Okay, so we're going to call you Abel because that's what your mom named you. Your beautiful wife, uh, Nicole, is right next to you. We're going to hear from her, her in just a few seconds, maybe a little longer than that. But let's get to the story of Abel Ortega. Where does it begin? Uh, my story begins uh, as far back as I could remember, about four years old. I was here in Salt Lake City. Um, my mom, she met this guy, wonderful guy. She ended up being my stepfather. Uh, we moved to California. And for some odd reason, my mom shipped me to my grandfather's house in uh, New Mexico. And I couldn't figure out why. But she shipped me over there. I stayed there for two years. My grandmother got sick. She had... Uh, had a brain tumor in her brain and she, they couldn't remove it without killing her. So my grandma ended up dying when I was about eight years old or so. And that kind of took a toll on me because I was really, really close with her and moved back with my mom for about six months. And then she shipped me back to my grandfather's house again. And I couldn't figure out why again. So I stayed with my grandfather until I was about eight years old, nine years old or so. And then finally, my mom came to pick us up to move to California again. So you say pick us up. Did you have siblings with you? I had a little brother. He's two years younger than I am. And when we moved back to California, um, my stepfather started molesting us. Well, me. He'd never molested my brother. and It was kind of hard. I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know what was going on. I, th- I thought it was a normal thing. And finally, I figured out this ain't normal, you know. And I told my mom about it, and she acted like she didn't care or anything. She stayed with them. And then when I turned 13 years old, um, I started hanging out with these guys that I thought were cool, you know, like my brothers. And knowing I didn't know they were gang members or anything because I didn't know the hell a gang member was. And go to find out they were gang members. And on my 13th birthday... Um, me and my friend Manuel, we went to his uncle's house and he 
gave us uh, some crank. It was crank back then. It wasn't meth. Mm-hmm. Never tried any drugs at all before that. We sat there and smoked it. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved the way it made me feel. Just made me feel on top of the world. No care in the world. Made me forget about a lot of stuff that I was going through. I'm going to stop you right there because uh, I'm sure Dr. Matt will jump in. But those formidable years, right? Uh, Yeah. I mean, you kind of just went over them as as matter of fact. But, I mean, from losing your grandma to the molestation to hanging out with gang members, I mean, that's a lot for such a young man to kind of process. Yeah, I think – you know, one of the things that sounds like you're talking about also is is attachment, like you're struggling with attachment. Weren't really sure why was mom, you know, sending me away. Uh, most kids who are six, seven, eight years old will um, personalize that and feel like, well, maybe it's my fault. You know, why wouldn't mom keep me with her there in California? Why is she sending me to my grandpa's house? Obviously, sounds like you loved your grandparents and that wasn't a bad place to be, but it might make a kid wonder, like, like, does anybody really want me? Because you're our mom, you know, that's an important relationship. And then all those things that happened during that time, uh, that's that's a lot for a, a guy. I can imagine feeling the escape of the drug was pretty welcome for you. Oh, it was so awesome. I never felt anything like it. And by the time you know it, I mean, six months later, I was I was a full blown drug addict. I couldn't get enough of it. I was at thirteen. At thirteen years old, could not get enough of it. I was robbing. I was stealing. So, had you kind of joined the gang at that point? Did yes, they- I have. I, they jumped me in when I was like thirteen and a half or so. I mean, they, they what does that me. look like for a thirteen and a half year old to be jumped into the gang? What did they do? They, I had uh, five people just jump me in for. 23 seconds so jumping somebody in um i've seen enough of uh colors and uh boys in the hood i mean basically they, like blood in blood out they mm-hmm. beat the crap out of you they for tried. 23 seconds yeah they tried <laughs> didn't, didn't didn't get you uh, i was a pretty i was a badass back then so fast um, huh? yeah real quick <laughs> but was that something you you wanted because you you use the term brothers like like uh, you I was, maybe felt like you found a group of, of brothers to be connected with? We moved around a lot when I was a kid and stuff. Like we'd stay six months here. My stepdad would get a job somewhere else and stay six months here. So I, I was trying to find that home where I could always have somebody right. around. That's why I use that term brother. Yeah. And Did then, the molestation stop at a certain point? It stopped when I was about 12 years old after I told my mom about it. But you were still living with him? I was still living with them for a little while. Um, when my addiction got really bad, I just stopped caring about what my mom told me to do or asked me to do. I just started going off on my own. I'd come home on a Wednesday and I'd tell her, hey, I'll see you on Sunday. And just a 13 and a half year old just living on the streets. Yeah. Just robbing and stealing, smoking meth. Smoking meth. Well, crank. Crank. Me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, how did school factor into all of that? School was boring for me. I mean, I was very intelligent school-wise when I did do my work and stuff. I mean, but it just, I just didn't like it. I didn't like being told what to do from the teachers or anything. I mean, because they would tell you what to do. They wouldn't ask you. Right. And I, I didn't like that. I didn't like the authority from them. So I just quit going to school when I was in seventh grade. 
So how long did you live on the streets for? And did you encounter any other violence besides being jumped in? Uh, I fought almost on a daily basis. I mean, rival gang members, um, people that I was robbing, you know, because I, I never, I guess I really didn't steal from people. If I wanted it, I took it from you. Like, I would be man enough to be like, oh, I like that ring. And I would try, I'd fight you for it. Or I would say, I want your wallet and not fight you for it. So you so weren't was, doing it in the cover or the darkness of night. No, no. With this, some sort of stealth. This is, this is aggressive. Yeah, hostile takeover, basically. And probably served the purpose of building your rep with the gang, right? I yes. mean, that was part of it. Yes, it did. I mean, they wanted to go take care of some business. They always called me. Get able. Get able. He'll take care of it. So how long did you uh, run and gun on the streets? You're about 14 at this time? When I was 14, um, that's when my mom and stepdad kicked me out of the house. I brought some meth over to the house. My homeboy asked me to hold on to it for him. And my mom found it underneath my bed, and she threw it away. And I snapped because it was quite a bit of meth, a lot. A lot. And I snapped. I looked at my mom. I was like, what did you do? And she goes, I don't want that stuff in my house. And and I grabbed her by the neck, like, and not realizing that I had her by the neck, and I was choking her. My stepdad tried to hit me. I mean, he was hitting me right in the mouth, face and everything, and I did not let go because I was just focused on my mom. And he finally got a two-by-four, and he hit me so hard in the head that I bounced from the from the floor like straight up i hit the floor and i sit straight back up mm. and that's when i released my mom and they told me to get out of their house so i left i, I never looked back after that did your mom and stepdad were they addicts did they use no my mom and stepdad did not use they drank on occasions but they never used any kind of drugs or anything and you were upset because you would have to pay for those drugs some way, somehow. I yeah. mean, you can't go back to your friend or your drug dealer and go, sorry, my mom flushed the stuff. Yeah. He was like, well, that's okay. That sounds like your problem. <laughs> I was in trouble. I mean, uh, my, luckily, my homeboy was my homeboy, you know, mm -hmm. and he just made me go do some dirt that I had to go take care of and took care of it, paid him back, and we were good. So you're kicked out at age 14, uh, and then are you just couch surfing? Uh, where, where, where do you lay your head at night? I was um, breaking into abandoned houses, just sleeping wherever there was an abandoned house and breaking there, sleep there for a week, keep on moving. That's what I was doing. Well, how long can you keep that up for? I mean, eventually you've got to find a permanent residence, don't you? Uh, I found a permanent residence when I got locked up in juvenile hall. And that's when I got down on my hands and knees and I prayed to the Lord and asked him to give me a hand, help me, please help me. How and old were you at that time? I was 15. So for, for a year plus, you were just kind of moving from one, you know, squat one, to another. Yeah, one place to another. I was homeless. And were you involved in the gang still at that time? I was time? still involved. Yeah. And you get locked up. You drop to your knees and you pray for help. Well, hold yes. on. Let's, Wait, what, what, what got you locked up in, in juvenile hall? I was breaking into a house. Um, and Deputy Lewis, I'll never forget his name, awesome guy, San Bernardino Sheriff, catches me, goes, Abel, goes, what the hell are you doing? He He knew me because he knew my mom and dad. And I was like, breaking into this house? And he goes, 
I got to take you in. My mom and stepdad, they were on vacation. They had no idea where I was at or anything. So Deputy Lewis took me into uh, juvenile hall and told my mom and dad where I was. Got out about a week later or so. And, well, in juvenile hall, when I got down on my hands and knees, I when I prayed that night, the Lord sent me a message. He uh, told me to call my grandfather. And I called him up, and he goes, Abel, why don't you come down here and help me work on the ranch? So when I got out of juvenile hall, I went to go visit my mom. She goes, Abel, do me a favor and call your grandpa. And I started crying right there. I was like, like the Lord touched me right there. He was like, and word for word, when I talked to my grandfather, it was the same thing as my dream. Abel, why don't you come down to the ranch? Come help me. So when you were locked up, you had a dream that you'd called your grandpa. And, yes. And that he had wanted you to come work on the ranch. And then in real life, when you were when you were released, your mom suggested it. You called him and had that same conversation? Same same exact wow. word for word. That's powerful. It, it is very, very powerful. So did you do it? I did. I went to the ranch when I was 16 years old. I was 15 turning 16. So um, I'm just asking because of the addict brain, uh, you've been doing crank for the past two years. Yeah. Uh, you just go down three. there, three years, you just go down there and give it up? Um, well, my grandfather sent me a train ticket, and I I took about an ounce of dope with me on the train, and I did most of it on the way up there. I mean, I was high for about a week. And when I got off in, where the hell was it? Right outside of Santa Fe, I got off the train. My grandfather picked me up. And I was such a mess that he looked at me and he goes, you're finally here. And I looked at him and I was like, Grandpa, I'm done doing this. And I had a baggie and I threw it out the window. And he started crying. And I slept. When I got to New Mexico, I slept for about a week straight. Didn't wake up to eat, didn't wake up to do nothing. I just slept. And finally, my grandpa said, this is enough. Went inside my room and goes, you're going to work. And I worked, 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 worked. And then... What kind of ranch was it that your grandfather had? Alfalfa. Okay. That's hard work. Oh, Moving pipe, right? Alfalfa. He had alfalfa, um, about a 50 head of cattle, mm. uh, 100 head of sheep, and some horses and stuff. Wow. That's a real ranch. Yeah. That's a lot of hard work. So you get up and you start working because Grandpa said so. You've slept for a week, yeah. so he knows you're rested. He, he he knows I'm sober now, basically. Yeah. But I, I didn't have that sober mind still. And so how does that go? Do, do, do you do what he says? Uh, of course, because I respect my grandpa to the fullest. I mean, he basically raised me. So. And I got up, went to work every day for the whole summer, and go to find out um, one of my uncles— uh, does cocaine and heroin. So I started shooting speedballs with my uncle when I was 16. Huh. So you're you're shooting mainlining the... Mainlining heroin and... Uh, at 16. At 16 years old. Wow. Now, was he, li- was he living and working on the ranch also, your uncle? Yeah, because my grandfather had a 500-acre spread, and he had the whole family there. Mm-hmm. He had three of my uncles live there. 
and then me and my cousin Robert and we were just all living together as a big happy family kind of like Little House on the Prairie and, <laughs> with eight ball and heroin eight ball and heroin basically. if it wasn't for the drugs that does sound like a really nice place to to be as a kid half pint age. running down the field yeah. um so how long are you speedballing for i did that for about six months and uh that's extremely dangerous i mean that's what killed john belushi that's what killed uh, uh a lot of hollywood a-listers i mean it's it's it actually killed my uncle um about 20 years ago or so. And was that like 20 years ago? So how much farther, how old were you then when that happened? I was in my 20s. You were in your 20s yes. when you lost Early your Early 20s. So yeah. you're, you're doing the speed balls for about six months with your uncle on the ranch. You're still living in New Mexico. No, this was in Colorado. New Mexico is where my grandfather had a had a hay lot there that he would sell his alfalfa oh. and stuff. That's that's where he took me at first. Okay. Then he took me to the ranch in Colorado. So why do you stop doing speedballs with your uncle? Just didn't like the way it was making me feel anymore. I just I was kept asking him if he can get any crank, get any math, and he told me no. He goes, he doesn't know nothing about it. So cranking meth becomes your drug of choice. It's always been my drug of choice. So... Uh, to replace the speedballs, where do you go? I started smoking a lot of pot. A lot of pot. I mean, so much pot. I, I can't even remember how much pot I used to smoke. But I started smoking pot. and About 17, 18 years old, I went to live with my real father in Phoenix, Arizona. He asked me to go work with them. I, I hadn't seen my real father in probably... I want to say since I was about 12 years old and then I've seen him when I was 17. So five year span. Yeah. So you pack up and you move to Phoenix, Arizona. Yep. My grandfather actually took me down to go meet my, my real father in Colorado. He was passing through and just picked me up at the truck stop there because he's a truck driver. And so how did, how did that go? It's kind of weird at first because my, my dad didn't know me as a smoker and as soon as I seen him, I, I lit up a cigarette. And I guess you're at age, and I was like, well, you ain't going to tell me what to do because you don't even know me, basically. <laughs> That's a tough talking. reunion. Yeah. Uh, maybe a lot of listeners could relate to that as well, that if you've been estranged from a parent for a long time, but you're still kind of a kid, 17, 18, and then they come back into your life, there's usually this bit of a power struggle between them wanting to parent you and you resisting being parented and that can create some serious conflict uh oh, how was that for you and your dad it, it was all right i mean my i was i've always been straight up with my dad like i found out he was doing cocaine also in phoenix i mean he'd come home from the road and call his drug dealer up and one day i he told me, he goes, Abel, I don't want you doing drugs in my house. And I looked at him and was like, why are you being such a hypocrite? I said, you're over there doing drugs. I said, we get it from the same dealer. And <laughs> I mean, what, what's going on with Did that? Did he not think you knew that? Did He, he think didn't he... think I knew it. Ah, uh-huh. okay. And he went in his room and started pouting, and he told me to leave his house. So how long had you been living with your dad before he asked you to leave? Probably about six months. Okay. So now you're in Phoenix. Um, you're asked to leave another parent's house. Where do you go from there? Move back to Colorado with my grandfather. 
You moved back to Colorado with your grandfather. Yes. Now, what is your grandfather thinking throughout this whole ordeal? Because you said uh, when you finally threw the crank out the window and told him you're done with this stuff, um, he started crying. But I assume he probably knows that, you know. He didn't know nothing about the heroin or the coke. Oh, he didn't? He didn't. I, I hid it from him pretty well. What's your grandfather, What at that time, what was his personality like? Was he pretty straight arrow, kind of a hard worker like a lot of ranchers are? Or? Just a hard worker. Like like you just you hit it right on the button. Just entrepreneur, self-made millionaire. He just does everything on his own, his own boss for many, many years. Because I've known quite a few ranchers and farmers, and I don't know anybody that works harder than those <laughs> folks, right? And, and they expect you to work hard too. Just as hard as he did. <laughs> yeah, and was that a problem? Because, I mean, you're doing no. drugs, and or, I mean, was it was it hard to get – because they get up early and they work late, right? It was um, pretty easy, I mean, because I, I, I don't mind getting up early. Okay. I mean, that means more drugs I can do. <laughs> I guess that's one way to look at sure. it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So you're, so you're moving back to Colorado. Grandpa, does he welcome you with open arms? Of course he does. And uh, so you're back there. At this age, you're probably 17, maybe 18? 17 years old. And moved back with him and asked him if I can start working like a real job and stuff because he didn't pay us to work on the on the ranch or anything. He just expected it to do because you live here for room, free yeah, room and board right and board. you're getting your room and board yeah and three hots and a cot basically yeah but you ask him for a real job yeah and i ended up uh started working for a landscaping company that was awesome i learned how to operate a backhoe drive a semi and stuff that's pretty cool and uh are you on meth at this point no i i had quit doing meth for from 16 till it was about 19 years old I quit for three years and I wasn't doing no coke or anything I was just smoking a lot of weed trying to suppress it you know and then when I was about 19 I ended up quitting the job at the landscaping company and I went back to Arizona to move with my dad again because I thought we left on bad terms and that worked out pretty good because my half brother uh, Simon was out of prison, and we just ran amok. I mean, we were robbing, we were stealing, we were um, home evasions. I mean, that was a new high for me. So it's kind of back to the old gang and old type gang life behavior. Is. Yeah. Okay. We're going to find out more about that in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt. Our guest is Abel Ortega. Uh, last time we uh, heard from him, he was talking about how he moved back to uh, Arizona to reunite with his father and his half-brother, Simon. And he said, uh, that's when things went pretty good. We were running amok. We were doing home invasions, <laughs> robbing and stealing. Uh, good's, a, good's a perspective, right? It's a matter of perspective. It was it was fun to me, uh, myself and my brother. I mean, that's that's. The well, fun we we got we we took it as fun. I mean, it, 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 the people that you were doing it to were not having fun. But I'm gonna I'm gonna guess for a second though because I can see what you mean, Abel. Like like you're you're a kid who grew up without the consistent healthy attachments with family, yeah. and I think that's why the gang life when you were a kid was so 
um, you know, interesting to you, like because you felt important to somebody, like you said, you know, that you had some close attachments there. And I think what you're talking about, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but like connecting you, you, you've been thinking for three years about your dad and how you guys had left on bad terms and you wanted to go back and fix that. And then I could see the sparkle in your eye when you're talking about running amok with your brother. And I know you know the behaviors that were happening weren't good, but probably that connection with your brother was pretty special, like to have that brother in your life, a real brother this time. Yeah, we were, and we we're we're the same age, like we're eight months apart, so it was just it was like a built-in best friend. But yeah. he'd been in prison. Yeah, he he's been in prison. I've never been locked up. I mean, and so you didn't get to know him well until this trip, is that right? Yeah, and he when he was out, he would be out for the summers, and then he would get locked up in the winters. I used to call him a bear. <laughs> go hibernate in yeah. jail <laughs> okay it's one way to do it but we we're, we're doing home invasions and stuff and um, how did that I, start why didn't you guys just go bowling and stuff well one day we were we were high we, we were smoking meth i introduced my brother simon to it i should have never done that but I, I did um we were smoking meth and one day i just looked at him and was like dude let's go do something and he goes well, what do you want to do I was like, let's go rob somebody. And he goes, all right, I'm down. And we just started doing that. I mean, and was that, that that face-to-face robbing like you used yes. to do? Wow. I mean, we would go into people's houses when they would be right there and just tie them up. And, wow. You know, that's that's some pretty serious stuff. I mean, that's yeah. that's not just grabbing someone's wallet on the street. But I, I started I started having a conscience about it, and I— I told my brother, I said, I'm done, dude. I'm, I don't want to do this no more. But previous to that, was there like a thrill to it, like you were saying? like It was a high, an adrenaline rush, you know, something you couldn't get unless you were doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, what made me have a conscience about it is uh, me and my brother, we, we pulled up on the side of somebody and we um, got out of gunpoint, pulled a gun on this guy and he handed us a wallet. He goes, all I got is 10 bucks. I seen the baby seat in the back and got back in. And I was like, dude, we did a felony for $10. Yeah. So I'm done. I'm not doing this no more. And I got um, a bus ticket back to my grandpa's house the very next day. And I told my brother, I was like, Simon, this is stop doing what you're doing because you're going to end up getting caught. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow, but you're going to get caught, dude. And... What do you figure? Three months later, he ended up getting caught. Did another two and a half years in prison. For that same sort of thing? For the same thing. Robbery. And you're back in Colorado working for Grandpa? Um, Kind of. I, I When I got back to Colorado, my Grandpa knew I was a mess, doing drugs and stuff. and He had found out that I had gotten a fight with somebody. Um, and I almost killed this dude. I, I hit him in the head with the... 40 ounce bottle and, and a Captain Morgan bottle and I cut his neck by his uh, artery right here and my grandpa asked me never to come back and that had to be devastating for you to hear I was probably one of the hardest things I've ever heard from my grandfather he looked at me and goes, goes you could have killed that guy and I told him sorry grandpa and he goes I don't want you here no more you gotta go and I ended up going to uh, New Mexico to live with one of my cousins out there. And 
Stayed out of New Mexico for about a month and a half. I was 20 years old, 21. Stayed out there, and I just didn't feel right there. We had a family reunion. When we had this family reunion, all the family got together, and all my family lives out here in Salt Lake City. One of my cousins asked me to come to move to Salt Lake City, and I was like, sounds like a good idea. I haven't been out there since I was a kid. So I ended up moving to Salt Lake City. But before that, um, I actually got to confront my mom um, in New Mexico and ask her why. Why she stayed with my stepfather after I told her that he had been molesting me and stuff. And she gave me an answer. And I couldn't figure, like, that was her answer she gave me. She's like, because I didn't want it to happen to you to any other kids. So she used us, used me as a scapegoat, basically. Wow. How did that affect you? How did, I mean, it messed gotta, me up. Yeah. Like, it, it, it messed me up. Rightfully so. You were looking for some solace and, and an explanation, maybe some closure, and instead you get that answer. Yeah. So you were basically the sacrificial lamb. Basically. And it, that messed me up pretty good and, I mean, what could I do? That was her answer. Right. So I ended up going to Salt Lake City. I got here on a Thursday afternoon. Moved in with my cousin, and I had a job by Monday morning. I was working for a block company. It's called Buner Block down on 27th and West Temple. Stayed there for seven years. Okay. What 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 do you do at a block company? I don't know. It was what a forklift is. operator. Forklift. Okay. So, so it was a pretty good paying job probably and steady work. Steady work, good paying job. I was doing meth once in a while, wasn't doing it as much. But I, I started a new addiction. It was opiates. Were you using uh, pain pills? I guess that's what it is. I started using uh, Percocets and lower tabs. And then it progressed to Oxycontins. And then more Oxycontins and more Oxycontins. And that was probably the worst I ever got doing drugs. I, I, well, one of the worst. I took so many one day that I, I thought I was going to die. I felt my heart rate just going slower and slower. And I called my dope man up. I was like, hey, man, can you bring me a, a teener dope? And start doing meth again. And that's when I did meth for many years after that. So you you stopped with the opiates. Got clean off the opiates. But you just shifted. I mean, you're just shifting to a new, another drug. Went from one to another. Went back to the old reliable. Yeah. Meth? Meth. Eventually you get fired from the block company or you quit? I, I ended up quitting. I went and talked to the owner of it. His name was Ken Mortensen. And I was honest with him. I told him, Kent, um... I have a drug addiction, and I got to go, dude. I, and he told me, thank you for being honest with me. Why did you feel like you had to leave? I mean, if he didn't know. Oh, he knew. Oh, he knew. He okay. knew. Yeah. He he. Uh, he was trying to maybe give you, be patient and help you out? Yeah, he just told me, he said, thank you for being honest with me. And he goes, and Mr. Ortega, you always have a job here. Okay. 
goes, go get sober, do what you got to do. He goes, but you always have a job here. But was you it, weren't going to get sober. I was going to no. say, was that on your mind at all, going Not to get some treatment or anything? What was the plan? Uh, to get high more on meth. I mean, I was married at this time. I met my first wife. Two beautiful kids. Where I was married, but I wasn't there because I was using drugs. I mean, I was working just to use drugs, just to get more high, get more high, working, working, working. And my wife at the time couldn't understand what was going on with me because I wasn't very open with her. I was trying to hide the fact that I was getting high. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a very good hider, I guess. And she found all these NyQuil bottles in my truck one day. So what is this for? And I was like, well, I've been doing meth for... Six years. I mean, <laughs> what was the NyQuil for? To help you sleep? Help me sleep. I'd just take a big old chug of NyQuil and then go to sleep and do meth in the morning. Kind of sucked. So, when she found the NyQuil bottles, you admitted to doing uh, meth for six years. Yeah. What did, how did she react? In awe. Like, are you serious? And we ended up getting in a big fight. She asked me to leave and I left and I didn't turn back. Just left my kids with her and the house, the cars, just packed and left. And where did you go? Went to go move with my aunt. Luckily, you have a big family. Oh, I have a huge family. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say. There's 14 aunts and uncles. Wow. Yeah. So you're going living with your aunt. Which was a bad idea because she she was a drug dealer. And I I ended up... uh, using a lot of drugs with her, spending a lot of money with her. And when the money ran out, she asked me to leave. And when that happened, I ended up going to Redding, California. Northern, yeah. Yeah, just packed up and left. Mm-hmm. What's in Redding, California? Lots of weed. Okay. Makes <laughs> I, sense. I learned how to uh, uh, grow pot out there. Worked with the pot farmer. But that that didn't work out either. I mean, I was... Still didn't get high. I, I didn't didn't want to stop getting high. I just kept getting high. What effect? I mean, here the, the picture here is a, a, a kid at a very young age, thirteen, starts using heavy drugs. You've, you've kind of gone all over the map using different drugs, but coming back to one of the dirtiest, which is meth, all the time. How now? You're in your twenties. I was in my thirties, late. Late twenties, early thirties, and so how's how's that affecting your body at this point? Like, how are you still able to get up and work hard every day? And, oh yeah, wow. I, I've ever since I got on the ranch and stuff, I, I my body's been able to get up and go to work. That's what my body's used to. Because I mean, meth during the day, Nyquil at night, yeah. year after year, that kind of behavior. I think it would take a toll. But you're like Superman. You're getting up and going, <laughs> working hard every day still, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you're in Redding, California. You learn to grow pot, but you're still getting high. And you said that didn't end well. Uh, No, I I ended up being homeless out there. Um, I was living in a right behind a dumpster um, by the Smiths. I was living right there. I was shooting meth. I. Looked up at the sky again. I asked the Lord to give me a hand. I said, please, Lord, I, I need your help. And that very next morning, I was walking. 
I was collecting cans. And this guy just pulls over the side of the road and he goes, uh, hey, do you want to work today? And I was like, sure. And we started talking. He goes, where are you living? I was like, I'm just living right there behind that trash can, basically. And he goes, not no more. He goes, you're going to live with me in my pasture. And I was like, are you serious? And he goes, yeah. He goes, I'm going to talk to my pastor and you're going to live with us. Okay, at the church, huh? No, I, I went to the pastor's house and lived, lived with oh, him. Oh, lived with him, okay. Yeah, at the pastor's house. And that was a sign from the Lord again. You've got some crazy connection with God here because every, time you, I'm one of every time you ask, something happens. Yeah, I'm one of his soldiers. I'm a strong believer of that. So you, so you move into the pastor's house. Uh, does, does he help you get clean? or you? Yeah, I stayed clean for three months. I live with my pastor. I mean, it was Bible study. Three days a week, church on Sundays. I mean, it was just an awesome, awesome time. But I, I started having back problems. I think it was from using meth. I mean, always tensed up and stuff. And I asked the Lord one day, I was like, Lord, this is okay for me to smoke weed for my back problems. And he goes, sitting there selling oranges on the side of the road. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me and goes, Hey, man, he goes, I'm a new pot for, uh, farmer. He goes, uh, would you try this out for me? And wow. And hands me an ounce of weed, like, hmm. for free. And I was like, oh, thank you, God, <laughs> you know? And my pastor found out about it, and he told me that that wasn't acceptable, and he kicked me out of his house. Okay. You had to go. Yeah. So, so where do you go from there? I went back to the homeless shelter in Redding, California, I was out there for about six months, and I finally uh, got a bus ticket back to Salt Lake City. So you come to Salt Lake City. Uh, any family left to move in with? Uh, not really. I went straight to the homeless shelter out here, and I stayed out the homeless shelter off and on for about five years. Wow. So during those five years, you're just homeless here in Salt Lake? Yeah. Uh, were you using a lot again at that time? At that time, and more than more than weed, you were. Uh, I wasn't using as much weed, but I was using a lot of meth. And then I met my beautiful wife, and she's the lovely lady sitting right here. This is Coley. We're going to talk yes. to her in a second. But you meet her while she's living on the streets as well. No, sir. I was living at my aunt's house for a couple months. I was taking care of my mom and my aunt, helping them out financially, and. I met her the the well, week. Let's, my let's aunt. put the mic over there, Nicole. Where where does where does uh, Abel meet you? He met me at Denny's in the middle of the night. I was using. I came from a different thing, so, but I was using. Um, I ran into him. I was stuck there. Friends didn't pick me up. Um, I saw this guy, and I. This is going to sound crazy, but he had like a halo around his head. Okay. And it might might be the drugs talking? It could be. It could be because I was pretty high. Yeah. You know, I was pretty high. But he, I was outside smoking and he came out and we started talking and he was like, do you need a ride somewhere? And I was like, no, I don't take rides from strangers. And he's like, hey, how'd you know that's my nickname? Because that's his street name, a stranger. Huh. <laughs> and so 
So he, I ended up talking to him a little more, and he was telling me how he took care of his mom and his aunt financially and how he paid the bills and stuff and lived with them. And I thought, okay, any guy that takes care of his mom and his aunt, he's got to be a decent guy. And I ended up going home with him that night, and the rest is history. <laughs> so let's, let's give the mic back to Abel. How were you providing for your mom and aunt? Uh, remember how I told you uh, – uh, Mr. Mortensen told me I always had a job there. Yeah? I was working there. You went back? I went back. You went back there and he gave you one? Yeah. And so you're helping out your aunt and uncle. Uh, you've got a new friend that you met late night at Denny's, Nicole. And uh, I think that's a rule, though. You can't meet someone during the day at Denny's. It had Denny's, it has to be To be honest, I didn't even know night. Denny's was open in the day. I, I, they may not be. I, I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> and, and so... And go to find... Uh, um, Nicole, Nicole came into my life at a perfect time. Um, my mom and aunt were moving to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, within that week. And I told Nicole, I, like, I got to take my mom and aunt to New Mexico. Will you pick me up at the at the station up here at the airport? She goes, Yeah, I can do that. And I, I didn't think she was really going to. <laughs> So I get off the airplane, and Lord behold, there she was, and that's when I fell in love with her. Like, this is the one for me. And we were only together for maybe three weeks at that time. And you guys are both using it this time. Oh yeah, very heavily, very very heavily. Where does your road to recovery or sobriety begin? Uh, about a year later, um, we're using. She was talking about going to rehab. She actually went to rehab first, stayed in there for, I think, two or three months. It looks like Nicole wants something to say. We It got really ugly with me and Abel. It was either I was going to be dead and he was going to be in prison for killing me. I mean, it got very ugly, abusive. Um, You're living together. Uh-huh. You're using a lot of drugs and it became abusive. Very, okay. very abusive. Um, we, I looked at him one day when we we're sitting over at the college out in, by Taylorsville, sitting there and I looked at him and I just said, I can't do it no more. I'm done. And I had been going through this process with my family and with the, with the predominant religion here. Mm -hmm. They helped me get into rehab. And I looked at him that day and I said, I love you more than anything. And I hope you can get clean and find your way. Cause I don't want to lose you, but I got to go. And my mom and dad picked me up right then, and I went to St. George and went to rehab. And then he kept running amok. Yeah, I continued using while she was in rehab, and I was homeless. I was living downtown Salt Lake in a tent, middle of winter. And somehow or another, she was able to get my phone number from my mom. I, I don't know how that happened, but it was God sent, I guess. Or she got my number and she she goes, Abel, she goes, I'm I'm in this room and I have four men around me and I'm gonna ask you three simple questions, just answer yes or no. Are you still using? I was like, Yes. Are you studying for your CDL? Yes. Uh, have you cheated on me? And I told her yes. And she goes, Hold on. She puts me on hold. 
and I'll let her tell. You come back, and what do you say? I just said, okay, get clean. When you're clean, let me know, because I'm in St. George. I'll be here. Let me know. And the next thing I know, he called me up two week, like two weeks later, and he said, okay, I'm, I'm clean, but I'm living here at, at the rescue mission doing their um, – they have a program there, for a 12-step program for addicts. And you got to give me a minute. I got to get my bearings straight because he was, you know, those people that are, they call it meth psychosis. Mm -hmm. He was out of his mind. Like I would go to sleep every night and I would eat, but he didn't go to sleep and he didn't eat. So he was like, he was crazy. He wasn't. Hallucinations, delusions, all of those Big things time. that we think of as psychotic episodes. You know, psychotic oh, yeah. episodes, I mean, he thought but they're drug had, induced, right? Yes, he yeah. thought I had white people downstairs. We were living at my son's dad's mom's house, sort of living there. Huh. He, he thought I had white people, little white people, little white men living down there, and I was like sleeping with them or something. I don't know what he thought. And he really, like, he was convinced those people were down there, like trying against him. And, and we've heard that from uh, a lot past of paranoia. Guests. A lot of paranoia. A lot of paranoia happens with that. But yeah. he's two weeks sober. He's doing the program down at the rescue mission. He will ask you for a little bit of time to get his bearings. Yes, and he calls me up one t- one day, and I was living in sober living at this point down in St. George. Uh huh. Um, calls me up and he says, "Okay, I'm ready." And I said, "Okay, well, I don't want to come back to Salt Lake. That it's toxic for me up there." I can't do it. So he came down to St. George, and we ended up living in my car down there, sober. We both got jobs at Costa Vida down there, and within a month, we had our own place to live. I mean, it was the middle of summer, and we were living in our car up, and we'd sleep up at the at the AA set, the AA house, whatever it is, yeah, where they'd have meetings up there. We'd sleep in the parking lot up there. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with Utah, that's southern Utah. In the summer, you know, temperatures are constantly over 100 degrees. Living in your car, that must have been tough. But you say within a month, you both get jobs and you find yourself in an apartment. That had to make you feel good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the day that our lives changed for the bet, like really changed, we were going through, Abel was going through the phone book and he found Redmond Van and Storage. And he used to work for Redmond Van and Storage, and he called him up down there, and it ended up being Felix, who Abel had run the road with a little bit. And Felix ended up saying, Abel, come work for me right now. And he got a job with him, and I got to quit working at Costa Vida that day. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so happy because Not we, making salads anymore, huh? No. Like, <laughs> Great salads, though. Very good oh, yes, salads. Very yeah. good. Yes, yeah, yeah. Delicious. Very good. And, I mean, Costa Vida saved us when we had nothing. Yeah. So let's get the mic back to Abel. So you start uh, working at Redmond Van and Storage, which is a moving company, right? Yes, sir. And uh, you got some good, clean work. How much of sobriety do you have under your belt at this time? I only had a couple months. Um, How I got sober, I was, after she had called me up, I um, told her I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to get sober. I said, give me a little while. One day I just, I got up from my tent, I looked at my surroundings and I was like, I'm really tired of this. And I went down to the uh, rescue mission in Salt Lake City. I went to talk to the uh, house counselor there. His name is Don Hill. 
I was like, I'm ready. And he goes, I've been waiting for you to ask me. He goes, like, I can't pressure you or anything. He goes, I've just, I've just been waiting for you. And I got in there. I stayed in there for, I want to say, a month and a half or so. Not even that, like 20-something days. And I was trying to figure out what I was doing wrong because, like I said, I continued doing meth, and then I'd stop for a little while, and then I just kept going in a revolving circle, like just kept going around and around. I was, like, I was like, what am I doing wrong? And I finally figured it out. For me, it was self-forgiveness. I never truly, truly forgave myself for the wrongdoings I did to other people when I was gangbanging, while I was using meth. I mean... Invading homes. Invading homes. I never forgave myself for it. And when I truly, truly forgave myself, I felt a burden off my shoulders. I mean, it took a while. I I stayed up one night talking with God. I was like, Lord, forgive me for this sin. I went down the line of every sin I can remember doing. And about two or three day, days later, I, I felt a burden off my shoulders. I just started crying. I, I couldn't stop crying. And I looked, and I was like, I'm truly done. I'm done. That's when I called her up, and I was like, I'm ready. She goes, all right, I'm sending you a bus ticket right now. We moved down it's, to St. George. It's amazing how emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, those things, those things that we've done that we know we shouldn't have done, when we hold on to them, it just weighs us down and pulls us down. And it it does create that, I like how your image of a revolving door, yeah. you know, you eventually need relief from it. And if you if the relief you know is drugs, that's almost always what's going to happen in a person's life. That's powerful to really connect with uh, self-forgiveness. Yes, it, it was hard. I, I couldn't figure out why. I mean, I, I, I could ask anybody to forgive me. I mean, I could ask you to forgive me, but whatever, you know, but it's, truly up to you to forgive me it's not my choice you know where deep down in my heart i never forgave myself for the wrongdoings i did to other people and when i did it was just just a great joy that i felt so did your sobriety begin with the the resource center i mean is that so do you remember your sobriety date um it was actually april 22nd Seven years ago. Wow. That's awesome. And so you guys eventually moved from St. George back to Salt Lake. Uh, I know you guys are living in a beautiful home on the west side of Salt Lake. Yes. Uh, you guys are business owners. You said you guys have literally went from zero to hero uh, in your own eyes, which is the most important Yeah, eyes. I, I, tell, I, I tell everybody, I mean, customers that I go load about my, about my addiction and stuff and um, I moved this guy, he was a, a DEA agent, um, to Washington. And he told me this thing, he goes, Abel goes, you're one of two things. He goes, you're either really ashamed of your addiction, he goes, or you're very proud of your sobriety. And that's always stuck with me. And I am very, very, very proud of my sobriety. I mean, well, that's amazing. I mean, think about this. Most kids are, you know doing kid stuff when they're 13 and at 13 you started using heavy drugs and your whole life up until seven years ago was drugs in and drugs out and and uh, illegal behaviors and and the i can only imagine these seven years have really 
changed your way of thinking about yourself? Blessing after blessing. I mean, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and um, it's just been blessing upon blessing. I, I, I made a promise with them. Um, when we moved down to St. George, I started drinking. I started drinking every day. I mean, I wasn't a drunk or anything. I was an alcoholic. Never had a problem with alcohol. But I, I asked the Lord, I was like, Lord, I was like, you help me get my CDL, I will quit drinking. I'll be done with it. And the day I went and took my test, I passed it, and I gave it up. And I haven't, I haven't looked back since. That's amazing. Your beautiful wife's over here in tears because your story really is amazing. I mean, I think from what Dr. Matt said just a minute ago, I mean, at 13, you start using hard drugs. But before that, a molestation, uh, shipped off to your grandparents, jumped into a gang, uh, homeless. You've been in and out of homes uh, for the majority of your life. Uh, all the time uh, in and out of drug abuse, uh, moments of sobriety, but you always went back to it. And uh, here you are with seven years of sobriety underneath your belt. It's pretty amazing. And you know what, Casey? One thing that, that I think I've seen with a lot of other people as well is you mentioned that you don't you don't hesitate to talk to customers and other people about your sobriety and your history. That right there is usually a great sign for the future. It's a good prognostic indicator that he's going to continue to be a sober person because he's not ashamed of it. He's not hiding it. I think that's one of the key factors when you really have, you know, embrace sobriety, when you really have started to live a life in recovery, uh, you're no longer ashamed and you don't hide those things. Is that your experience? Um, It is my experience. I mean, there's a lot of people in the world that that have the same addiction it, it, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but they're addicted to something and they're ashamed to talk about it or they don't know what to do about it. And I, I have customers ask me, like, well, what do you do in this situation? I, I give them my advice and to the best of my knowledge, you know, I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, but I, I give them what worked for me. And right. they, they, they take it. And I think that shame keeps people in the dark. It keeps people feeling lonely and detached. And what do we say all the time, Casey? The opposite of addiction is an abstinence. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And it sounds like you found you that connection. You can't connect unless you're authentic and honest and open. Well, that right. reminds me of that guest we had uh, a while back ago, Tony Carroll. Mm-hmm. And she said, mm-hmm. uh, if you really know me, then you need to know this. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to have an authentic friendship with you, you need to know all of it. I don't want you just to get the cliff notes, the highlights, the good stuff about me. Right. You need to know this. And I remember she said, uh, and it's kind of what uh, the DEA agent said to you. He's like, I can either make my addiction the worst part about me or the best part about me. Mm-hmm. And I choose to make it the best part about me. It is the best part about me. It made me who I am today. So tell us the name of your business. Let's plug that. Um, well, it's it's really not my business. I I work for North American Van Lines. Okay. Um, I'm a household mover, uh, but I did buy my own truck, so it is my business. So. Yeah, yeah. Be proud of it. I, I think love that's, it. That's, that's <laughs> and those trucks aren't cheap. <laughs> I work for Redmond Van in Storage. Yeah, that's that's the agent I work for. So. Okay, that's and, awesome. Well, hey, I, Dr. Matt, I think this has been an amazing story. It has been, but I have one more question. Okie dokie. And this is a pretty personal one. Yes. Because I've decided I'm not going to let these things go anymore on the show. I don't want you to. And, well, <laughs> uh, you know, we're at the end of the show. But 
But you mentioned being molested by somebody you trusted as a child. And I'm going to ask you, is that something that you've worked on in therapy? Do you feel like that's something that you've no. spent time on yet? Um, I didn't. I, I just worked through it. I mean, I don't know how I got over it, but I'm over okay. it, you know. Well, well good. I hope so. Yeah. I'm going to suggest this, though, that recovery comes in phases and stages, right? Yes. And you've had seven years of sobriety, and sobriety and is one thing, but recovery is another. And I think that you obviously have shown that you are well into your recovery. I'm just going to make a soft suggestion, and that is some point in your life, you're probably going to want to sit down and talk with somebody about that. Because as Casey mentioned, those things that are so um, damaging to us as kids... Um, are are very tough for us to handle. So I, I hope you'll consider that. But anyway. Hey, uh, I want to say thank you very much to our guests for stopping by today. We appreciate them being so authentic and telling their story. Uh, Project Recovery is brought to you by uh, knowyourscript.org. And don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.